2: Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead. Uh, everybody, pretty much, his favourite new podcast about walking, cycling, and livable streets. This is now unbelievably our eighth episode, but significantly our first live one. And uh, hopefully we can throw into the mix a live internet audience. My name, and I very rarely, very rarely get to actually introduce this podcast, so this is a bit of an honour for me. My name is Ned Bolting, and
3: My name's Laura Laker.
0: And my name's Adam Tranter.
2: And tonight uh, we'll be doing a question and answer session. That means that you ask the questions and we try to answer them. We have already got some questions that have come in over the last few days via Twitter and email and other ways. But um, do throw them at us as we proceed and we'll keep an eye on that uh, throughout. So uh, we're here for the next hour to talk and celebrate Hernhill Velodrome's annual VeloFet, which started last year and which I was present at. It feels very disappointing to be only here in a virtual sense and not actually at the wonderful track, which I know um, very well. I'm still currently the the rather ineffectual but very proud uh, president of the the Board of Trustees at Hernhill Velodrome. Um, And if you haven't already, I'd urge you to donate at the website, the Hernhill Velodrome website. You'll find it all there. The suggestion is twenty quid, but I know the kind of people who go to Hernhill Velodrome, or at least some of them, and they can afford way more than that. So, um, slap the cash, right? That's my link with Hernhill Velodrome. Laura, do you have a link with Hernhill Velodrome at all?
3: I kind of do. So, I had my first track cycling experience, my very brief uh, track cycling career, which uh, consisted of three different taster sessions, which I found very fun. The first one was at Herne Velodrome before they had the resurface. Do you remember what it was like then? Yep. Um, Yeah. So, it was brilliant fun. I went round. I'd never had my feet strapped into pedals. I was quite new to cycling at the time. I was really pleased with myself. I went round. They said at the end, stop by the fence put your hand on the fence and then you can take your, your feet out of your pedals. And, uh, and I was so pleased with myself. I sort of stopped and then in slow motion keeled over and then got this did. massive sort of, yeah, it was amazing. I've actually got an extra bit of bone on my knee from the impact there. So you can still feel it today. <laughs> so that's what I've gained from Hernhill Velodrome, but yeah, it's a fantastic place. And, uh, yeah.
2: But I mean, a track bike clipping in for the first time and on a yeah. velodrome. That is quite literally a steep learning curve, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it, really, it was. <laughs> there's a lot it to was. contend with there.
3: I got to go to a barbecue afterwards with this really gory knee and, and a dress on. So I was showing it off. That was my, that was my party piece.
2: Magic and Adam Phil's introduction there from the Velodrome just before we came live. Um, he suggested that there is photographic evidence of you racing against some bloke called Bradley Wiggins.
0: That is uh, that is true. Uh, against is is really stretching that word. I was in the same field. Um, I spent most of the uh, most of the time trying to get near Bradley Wiggins, knowing that the photographer would be there. Um, So I could promptly retire uh, and not do anything ever again, which is exactly what what happened. Um, But I know my my dad drove me to Herne Hill. I live in the Midlands and um, I remember that most years at Good Friday, I rode it for a couple of years, um, it was mainly spent kind of looking out the window uh and seeing if it was gonna rain or not. Um and which it and, did every
2: it, year it yeah, rained every year, didn't it? I mean pretty much.
0: Yep. Pr- pretty much. Um so it was kind of a case of scurrying out, racing, kind of hiding, uh racing and et cetera. But I I loved it. And you know, I've been to Hernhill Hill um, a bit more recently. We did a bit of a taster session for friends and um clients at my work and 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 that was great fun. And um back uh, ages ago, I remember going to like cycle jumbles at Herne Hill as well, um, which um, don't seem to be much of a thing anymore. Um, but I, I, as people who know me, love just buying cycling tats. Um, so that's what, what I did at Herne, Herne Hill and then my fond memories.
2: Yeah. Cycling jar. I've been to one at Herne Hill. It's full of sort of like um, strangely enthusiastic people who like
0: sprockets. That's a good way to put it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> um, Right, let's crack on because we have got a number of issues to deal with, and as Phil said, it could not be more current uh, um, uh, what's going on at the moment, especially in terms of our our podcast, our interest. And it's really lovely to have the kind of um, feedback from the Hernhill community into this podcast as well. Uh, starting uh, first of all with Isabel Clements, who I've met a number of times, who's from the Wh- Wheels from Being for. second, the Wheels for Wellbeing organisation, which does. Um, it kind of almost serves a unique function in that it does remarkable thing uh things in terms of getting uh people with disabilities on bikes it as an organization i know that they use hernhill velodrome and have a long standing um association with Her- hernhill velodrome but they are in a um, they are doing an extraordinarily important job for an awful lot of people. And Isabel has asked, asked us this. Um, I'd love them, in other words, us, um, to give their reactions to our position statement on the importance of accessible post-lockdown wheeling and cycling environments. So the accessibility for, um, for people with disabilities in particular. Now, going on to um, the website for um, Wheelers for Wellbeing... Uh, the points that she sort of flags up for our discussion, and Laura, I think you've dug into this a little bit, but I'll just summarise it. Um, inaccessible infrastructure, for a start, that's point number one. The prohibitive cost of mobility equipment, point number two, something's quite expensive. Three, the failure to recognise cycles as mobility aids, um, in brackets as mobility scooters are, I guess, legally uh, recognised. Um, Many disability uh, disabled people also rely on public transport for an element of their trips. They're urging government to take the five main steps to prevent people being locked out of pop-up infrastructure, uh, financial support and training for non-standard and e-bikes, and a blue badge scheme for cycles as mobility aids, and a public awareness campaign similar to the RNIB's call for a COVID courtesy code for people um, with visual impairment to ensure that new infrastructure is accessible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So further five asks for local authorities from provision, blah, blah, blah. There's really quite a long list of stuff here, Laura, that needs addressing. Um, And Adam, with respect to you, uh, I I think I'm going to go straight to Laura for an answer on this one. What is being done or is nothing being done? I suspect not a great deal might be being done. Am I right?
3: Well, Um, As you say, uh, Wheels for Wellbeing is kind of an amazing charity because it's almost single-handedly raising the profile of um, people who use cycles for disability, uh, people with disabilities who use cycles as mobility aids. Um, And so I think something like 75% of people who are disabled who cycle find it easier than walking. Um, So it can be an amazing tool for um, freedom and just uh, independent travel. And so it's super important that um, infrastructure caters for people People with disabilities, and um, so that's important with regular cycle infrastructure. So things like widths that take that can accept non-standard cycles, and also not having too steep a camber that might tip someone out of a trike or something, and then also not having cracked surfaces that might um, also tip people up or stop them um, when they're riding like three-wheelers. Um, I think Transport for London, as with many things um, in terms of providing for people with disabilities, are among the sort of leaders in the UK. They've got a temporary traffic management handbook, which is um, just working with people like uh, Wheels for Wellbeing, who've taken different kinds of cycles along through temporary um, infrastructure roadworks and kind of got them to understand what sort of uh, turning circles are needed and what um, uh, what's cambers can be acceptable. And I think... I hope and think that this is what's happening with some of the temporary infrastructure. Although some of it's going very quickly, I imagine there's going to have to be a bit of retrofitting, and I hope that's happening at borough level as well, and not just from Transport for London. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot to think about, and I think um, people with disabilities often forgotten in transport, and and it's really important as things are changing so quickly that they're not forgotten with the, these new um, these new infrastructure.
0: Um, yeah, I, I I totally, totally agree. And um, I um, have had some experience with Isabel and Will's Wellbeing Charity and trying to um, uh, get more involved and and um, try and show um, cycling uh, as inclusively as possible. And I think that's one of my kind of wider, something I'm really passionate about, because one of the wider um, bugbears I have of cycling in this country is um, i I just saw a Twitter thread as I was coming on to hear someone uh moaning about people cycling on a promenade um somewhere near Brighton and the the argument was you know you don't understand what it's like you know you're a you're a male healthy you know able bodied person think of the children think of the disabled people um and and think of those less more vulnerable than you that need to um, be looked after when we're sharing the road and um I sort of you know that's often a, a debate that that comes from, it, but it, it massively ignores the increasing number of people who do, and even more that would if it was made easier. People who uh, would cycle in all its various forms if it was made easier. And um, you know, in the Netherlands, I've seen some amazing pictures of you know people going about their daily business on all sorts of contraptions that would fall within the you know the framework of being a cycle. Um, and you, you, in the UK, it's, it's not seen like that. So we need to start seeing people, um, you know, in everything, in advertising in uh, you know, out and about events and, and things like that to, you know, start to associate that cycling is not just for fit male people riding in Surrey, um, and that it's for everybody. And that's something that really needs to, to, to happen.
3: Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah. representation is, is super important. And uh, uh, one of the things that Wheels for Wellbeing was talking about is uh, a blue badge scheme because um I've spoken to people with disabilities who can who can barely walk, but then cycling you wouldn't be able to tell they have a disability. And um, so, if someone's cycling, they're asked to dismount, they might not actually be able to, and um, and it's kind of hard for some people to understand. Hence the education campaign, and hence the the blue badge scheme, so people can say, you know, if there's a cyclist dismount area, then they can just say, well, actually, this is my mobility aid, and, and like, yeah, they can keep cycling.
0: The, the other thing that's really important, and this affects um, not only um, people with disabilities, but also um, the increasing amount of people riding bikes that don't kind of conform to what we think of a, a bike when we, when, we, um, when we see one drawn uh, or, or illustrated. Um, and that's like myself, you know, I ride a cargo bike, um, you know, disability cycles are, are can come in all shapes and sizes, but, you know, they're not like as mobile as a, as a standard two wheeler um, and all up and down the country, we've had this, it was, you were talking about this last episode, Ned, about the kind of no ball games thing. Um, this kind of legacy that, that has just crept upon us. Um, but if you actually cycle, and I was talking to Sustrans about this the other day um, and, and, you know, they're well aware of it and, and doing their best. Um, but if you go down the national cycle network or you, you know, you follow um, you, you follow major kind of cycling routes and towns and things like that quite frequently. You'll you'll come up against these monstrosities, these gates that are, are specifically designed for you not to be able to go through them without kind of twirling and twisting. And and I can't make it as an able bodied person in my on my cargo bike, and often have to take different routes now. And that just, I mean, that needs to either be stopped on a national level or people need to be issued with angle grinders uh, as part of the, I'd actually don't do that, let's, let's clarify that, don't do that, uh, write to your counsellor, do not use angle grind, grinders, mm. um, but it needs to change because that's prohibiting lots of different types of people.
2: All right. Listen, we're getting the questions flooding in now, which is great. Thank you very much. There's a couple that we've got banked up that I think we should try and deal with succinctly. I'm not saying you were long-winded in that answer. It was full of detail, both of you, so I congratulate you for that. Um, Adam, you're you're looking like you, you weren't sure whether you were long-winded. I'm telling you, you weren't long-winded and I applaud you for it. Um, but but we, maybe we should be a bit more brief. Um, Brian Cranston uh, has already asked on Twitter, before I get onto these live questions, are, and Laura, I don't understand this, are wands, he's put it in inverted commas, wands, Wands, as in Wandsworth, are wands the way forward? To me, they seem very cheap, but effective way of permanently segregating the road for cyclists. Are they those wiggly, biggly things that stick up in the air?
3: Oh, I like that description. Yes, they can be wiggly. If you bash into them, they will wiggle. Um, it looks like a kind of orange pencil uh, with a with like a reflective jacket on. So yeah, those. Um, so those are ones. Um, I think, yes, in a word, uh, ones of the future. I spoke to, I remember speaking to Brian Deegan, who's a traffic engineer. He's Chris Bourbon's policy advisor in Manchester and worked with Andrew Gilligan on London cycle routes. He reckoned that with what we call light segregation, or so light separation, um, these kind of ones or little blocks that you put on the road, It would cost like 60,000 per kilometre versus 6 million for the curbs and all of the bells and whistles that you can get with more sort of permanent long teams. and you could, he reckons you could have done the entire central London network with the billion pounds that Boris set aside for the couple of cycleways he did. Um, he reckons that's like the best way to start it off, and then you can iterate, and make it better, like over time. But but yeah, a billion pounds you could do the entire uh, of London. Imagine if you had that for every city in the UK, you could we, we'd be we'd be swimming in uh, in wands.
2: Let's not get on to the nine hundred thousand pounds that uh, is being paid to paint the tail plane of the prime minister's jet with a union jack. Um, let's just not get onto it. I didn't get onto it and I see no reason for you to get onto it either. Um, uh, right. Listen, uh, John Grant, Adam, let me chuck this in your way. Why are certain places much faster on the uptake of wider pavements, pop-up cycle lanes and all that sort of thing? Um, uh, and I'm with John on that. It seems massively inconsistent throughout the London boroughs. I don't get why my borough seems to be quite slow, for example, in Lewisham. So why, why is it a bit patchy?
0: Um, uh, political will, I think, and, and, um, with a little bit of funding kind of uh, issues thrown in. So, um, there are some councils, um, Hackney is one of them again in in London, but also to, to make sure we're not being too London centric. Uh, Leicester was, uh, was another that said, um, because of the COVID crisis, we're going to take action and we're going to take it now. And they did some quite impressive things very quickly. They did that with their own funding. So they did that out of the council coffers um, and they did that in a matter of uh, of days. Um, now, they are both two areas that kind of have political leadership that su- are supportive of cycling. So there was no kind of um, debate, discussion. What happens if we upset these people? Could we do this and et cetera? It just happened. And then funding wise, um, you know, uh, where I am uh, in Coventry, um, you know, Coventry is in the middle of, uh, I guess, ambition um, in that it has some plans. It will not, it has yet to put a cone down on the ground. Because the DFT have not yet uh, issued the money, so the money is not in their bank account, despite them applying for it, etc. So um, that's the kind of um, you know a chicken egg situation again, where it's uh, will you know what do we what comes first? And the infrastructure needs to come first, but we're waiting for this funding. So when councils are strapped, which many are, um, and there's no political will and no leadership and no one saying oh, you should take some money out of Rhodes' budget and, and put it to this because this is important. Um, you end up with a situation where nothing happens until they're, they're forced to, um, which is where we're at. But um, we are seeing some 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 improvements. But I think genuinely in six months' time, we'll be looking at a total postcode lottery of where it's good to cycle and where it isn't in this country.
2: Well, we, we, that, that actually handily... Brings me on to the last, if you like, pre-recorded question um, from Lindsay Melling, who has asked us, the road I live on is both a named cycle link into Bristol, that's her word, so I don't know quite whether that's a Sustrans official route, I suspect it might be, into Bristol and a horrible rat run. What can I do from a standing start to get my street made safer? Love the podcast, by the way, which I thought I'd throw in because, you know, it's not often we get that. Um uh love the podcast. No, no I'm focusing on the wrong bit. Um, what can I get to make my street say safer from a standing start? In other words, activism, Laura. Uh what what how do you how do you get involved? How do you how do you kick this off, this process? Well,
3: um I know there's a Bristol cycling campaign. And I know there's people like, um, we spoke last time to um, playing out. I don't know if they might be a way in. You could talk to them about um, maybe closing the street for a day um, every so often. And that's quite a good way of getting your neighbours, maybe getting to know your neighbours more if you don't know them already, um, maybe getting them behind the idea of reallocate or having the street not as a rat run for a day and maybe thinking actually maybe this could be long-term. Mm. Um, so yeah, people like Sustrans, people like living streets, um, as well could perhaps, um, help you. But I think basically if it comes from your neighbors and you to your counselors and you say you want to do it and you kind of push for it and you get a bit of a consensus locally, um, that's, that seems to be, um, the way to, um, to start it. It's, it's not easy. And there's, I don't think there's a one size fits all, but that's what I'd say.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. On locally, um, the the, the key phrase here is rat running um, because uh, it's a brilliant way um, to sneak in, uh, cycle and walking friendly infrastructure while taking on, you know, the the big societal issue that everyone can agree that they they hate. So um, talk about rat running, talk about, yeah, the issues that that causes, talk about Uber drivers and people cutting through and, and things like that. And, and um, you know, if you can get that consensus, it's a fairly low cost uh, measure. And it is one of the low cost measures that's uh, enabled in these kind of new uh, reams of funding that's coming in. Um, so yeah, get your neighbors on board, get a petition. Petitions always work well. Um, check on the council website. Sometimes they make sure you can only use a certain type of petition software, um, but do a petition and, uh, yeah, it makes some change. It sounds like, uh, if you've got the community on board, it can be possible.
2: Thing, thing I always worry about with these things though, and maybe, th- maybe this is a question without an answer is, What sort of numbers do you need to have any kind of heft or influence, right? So if you take the example of, um, if you take, for example, the the government petitions, you know, you can get 100,000 people to sign a petition, which is, you know, absolutely preposterous. It gets debated in parliament and then just completely blocked. You know, nothing happens. Nothing ever happens from those things. Um, On a local level, obviously, you're talking about much smaller numbers. If I were thinking about encouraging my council to consider, as Laura brilliantly suggested, closing my street for a trial day... Would five households be enough, or do we need hundreds of people? I mean, what kind of, you know, at what point do they stand up and take notice?
3: I think it really depends on the local politicians. I think uh, political, basically, all these things boil down to political will. If the local politicians believe in this cause and they believe that it will make um, their their kind of constituents' lives better, and you know, that, that's what they want. Then, then it can happen. And if they're willing to take the flack, and if they're not, and and there's a consensus among the voters, then you can always vote them out um, and vote someone in who will who will deliver. That that's kind of the bottom line. But if they don't want to do it, it's, it can be quite hard. I've some ca- um, some local campaigners have got councillors out on their bikes, um, taking them on a little tour to get them to experience stuff for themselves. Who counselors who maybe haven't thought about cycling don't get it don't believe in it it might be a way like to get them into it
2: yeah
0: adam it it can um yeah it can obviously differ massively um uh, it is an uphill battle though like we should not skirt around that um, got an example from today in Coventry we've got a um, a Cowden um, cycle route it's a very high quality segregated cycle route into the city that's up for consultation there's a petition against it which has 150 signatures um, and the Coventry Telegraph today ran with you know shock petition against cycle path um, and the second line of the article is there is also a petition in, in, in uh, for, the, um, for the cycle path which has three hundred signatures, uh, which is' it's just <laughs> <laughs> double it fortunately I've done a separate article on that, but you know you can tell which ones are going to be commented and shared on when it gets to when it gets to Facebook, but I think you have to you have to um, make it feel like uh, there's enough people that will uh, will listen um, yeah
2: but that's man bites dog and dog bites man isn't it you know that's yeah. how the, that's how the newspaper industry works, isn't it Laura. Yeah, yeah, of yeah that's, that's, what we, that's what we live
3: for. Yeah. Conflict, conflict. I remember <laughs> there was one in, I think it was Barnes, where the, where people were um, petitioning because they were worried about unexploded W uh, World War Two ordnance um, exploding and, and all sorts of things, but it never happened. The, the thing got built, nothing exploded.
0: My favourite one from the other day was people moaning in Bath about um, uh, a suburb of Bath about um, the new new kind of temporary. Um, road closures for pedestrians and there was a man, you know, there's a there's actually a Twitter feed for it of um angry people in local newspapers, you know, where they're I doing that, that kind of face yeah. where they look like they're really sad. And um there's a man in who's quoted, he got a whole article to it, it says, How am I gonna carry a twenty five kilo bag of peanuts down the <laughs> road if all these you know if I can't park close to it? And that that, that warranted his own article. Like Brilliant.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: He's got a large pack of monkeys.
2: No, I didn't uh, think of that. No, I didn't. No, none of us thought of that actually, Laura. Funnily enough. Um, right, let's <laughs> let let's move on to questions that have come in since we've been gassing on, which is very uh, rewarding. And I shall just scroll through them there in a seamless broadcastery way. Um, let's start at the top. Question from Celia, and it's directed at you, Adam. You look like you're distracted at the moment, but um, concentrate because this is coming your way. Oh, I see. You're just having a swig of beer. Nice. Okay. Adam, you've talked about the marketing stroke status aspect of cars. Uh, and this is quite early on in our podcast, I think. You you talked about how they're kind of marketed. Um, should camp- uh, Celia asks, should campaigners push the status appeal of bikes, pedal or electric, or strive to keep its image as a cheap and effective means of transport and exercise? That's a really good question. Do we try it's- and- Compete yeah. with car manufacturers on their own terms, or do we go anti car message?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, um, ah, oh, that's, that's a super interesting question. And, um, there are, I think, answers on both, in both camps. And, and the, the answers would be that, um, if you are a brand, um, you know, we work with lots of brands in my, in my day job. Um, and I've just seen something excellent from, uh, Van Moof, uh, who make, um, Dutch electric bikes and they've they've recreated a glossy car advert with a, a sort of Lana Del Rey style female soundtrack in the background and then the car uh, turns into a, sort of a massive blubber of nothing and then it's kind of ride right to the future and there's a picture of a nice bike. And I think for brands that kind of is quite thought provoking and I've been talking to the brands that are making e-bikes and sort of saying, well, a lot of people in this market and for, to get media attention, you know, people are interested in what like Elon Musk is doing and, you know, you have to make it like interesting in that sense. So I think when I've got a van move and when I ride it, people are like, Oh, that's a really cool bike. And I can engage with people like on that level. However, that only in my view, probably, um, serves a purpose of getting more people like me cycling, um, which we, you know, be nice, but we don't, you know, don't urgently need, we need, Um, We need lots of people cycling for normal everyday journeys where, where I am 33% of people don't own a car. So we have to have an alternative to people's public transport. And that alternative probably shouldn't be a 3000 pound bike. So I, I I think it's horses for courses, but there's definitely like a a brilliance in, in marketing the kind of um, freedom and enjoyment that you get Um, versus, um, versus the kind of enjoyment that you don't get from maybe driving a car.
3: I was interviewing someone recently who had the kind of the opposite, um, idea. She's written a book about, um, eco linguistics and, um, discourses in um, sustainability and transport. And it's 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 kind of amazing actually talking to her because she was saying that um, the kind of language about um, the market and uh, the economy is like the dominant discourse that we have today. Like everything's about this is going to save the economy X number of pounds, like cycling is going to save because of the health and because of the congestion. Um, and her belief was that we should totally change the discourse and not kind of try and fit in with this. What, what is quite a toxic um, way of talking about the world because, you know, is that really what's important in a finite planet? And instead we should be, um, we should be being more radical about it and, and speaking in a totally different language. I'm not a marketing person, but I just quite like the idea of saying, not going to play along, going to, going to just do something totally different and exciting. And I don't know what that is, but yeah.
2: I think that's a really good point, Laura, because there is a danger that everything that we talk about, whether it's the stuff that we talk about regularly or, or, or racism or the LGBT community or politics or, you know, the environment, um, everything has become, or seemingly seems to be reduced to a sort of culture war in some description. And that's something that is quite dangerous potentially for the wider uptake of cycling that that we get, we get pushed into a kind of, um, pigeonhole where we don't belong or don't certainly don't want to belong. So I would, and I don't know how you affect this in the real world, Adam, that you operate in with marketing and working with brands, but I would suggest that ultimately bicycles have to become as commonplace and diverse, being the keyword, as shoes, right? So, so you know, <laughs> shoes are things you use to walk. Bicycles are things you use to ride. So you presumably have a wide selection of shoes. I don't. I've got trainers or an old pair of Dr. Martins that I've had for two years. Um, <laughs> but lots of people have lots of different types of shoes. That's what I'm saying for different things. And, and that, should be, that should be exactly how bicycles are considered. Um, so every brand, and there are lots of different types of bikes after, uh, after all, and different sort of types of consumers, customers who will buy those bikes. Every brand I think should find its niche in that sense.
0: Yeah, um Dr. Ian Walker we had on for episode 2 and I've been working with him a bit recently. He he's done some really interesting stuff on this. One is about like the the pressure to conform and like do what's normal. So Cycling can sometimes be pigeonholed as, oh, that's a, like an eco-warrior thing, or that's kind of, what was it, the day that the um, uh, the LTDA was sort of like uh, skinny latte drinking, you know, uh, mm. or, or whatever. Mm. Um, he did some research on showers, um, and he timed how, how long people took showers for. And basically, no one knows how long people take showers for, what's normal. So he started to tell people what normal was, and they started to change their behaviour um, uh, accordingly. And he also, maybe just got a thing about um, water and appliances, but he did something about, are you making me move on? Come on. I, I hate I hate this. I, I can't normally see. <laughs> I don't normally get this. I can normally ramble about whatever I want. And you're, you're uh, 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 doing uh, Listen,
2: I, I, I think you're wonderful and fascinating. But I've got to. I've, I've just got to move you on, but partly because you're just literally recounting a story that is in on a, an earlier episode of Streets Ahead. So <laughs> listen so to episode from,
0: two of Streets Ahead. Exactly. exactly. Just
2: I, you know, just point them in that direction because we're getting quite a few questions in. So let's, let's fine. Let's I'm not go looking back at the, that. You're being a good moderator. The, the, the thank you. Thing. So yeah, <laughs> no problem. Adam. Uh, question. Question from John. What's being done about providing more parking spaces for bikes? especially near people's place of work. We raised this the other day. I think Laura and I I don't think any of us had a good answer for it. I wonder if you've had time to find out a little bit more about that.
3: Yeah. Some of the street space funding that's pouring into boroughs from Transport for London, from central government via Transport for London, is going to um, bike parking specifically. Um, I think personally, um, employers should be trying to help people with uh, bike parking spaces and other facilities in their workplaces because I think that's a huge uh, going to be a huge like driver. Uh, once people get to work, they need like stuff spaces for their bikes, space to maybe get changed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, we don't know um, what kind of, what's happening nationally with all of the bids that have come in yet. Um, Transport for London's a bit, yeah, it's it's kind of published a load of stuff, which I produced in Road CC today. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, very, inter- it was very interesting
2: that, and hopefully we'll get a chance just to drill down into some of the detail of how diverse yeah. it is that the amount of spending that's already been allocated, yeah. it's quite interesting. So it's so, it is bit, yeah, gone. Yeah.
3: So we hope so, basically. We hope so. Um, and it will be important because, <laughs> yeah, because... Yeah, no one wants their bike stolen.
2: It's a good, it's a good question, John. You're not the first to have raised it. Um, Clive asks: Presumed liability is coming to the presumed liability coming to the UK, and he puts in brackets here. Scotland is ahead in the race, which I didn't realise. Didn't know there was a different thing there. Um, Reduction in policing of traffic over recent years and effects on safety of vulnerable road users. So there's a whole bunch of different questions there. But let's just narrow it down to one, Clive, if that's all right with you. And um, is there a sense that presumed liability... Well, first of all, Adam, what is presumed liability? And do we know whether there's any chance of it being applied to British law?
0: Yeah, so I'm going to say what I like heard when I was listening to Grant Shapps talking about it and and or talking inferring that there might be something in the future uh, about a presumed liability. Um, presumed liability uh, happens in almost every country uh, in the world uh, except for uh, Britain, and uh, it basically it's the basic premise is if you hit something smaller than you while you're out on the road, it's your fault unless you can prove like otherwise through evidence so if a car hits a car driver hits someone on a bike it's the car driver's fault Um, and if a cyclist hits a pedestrian then it's the cyclist's fault and I happen to think that this will because this will uh, this will create narrative and create discussion as it has in the past I happen to think that it has the potential to change the dynamics of our of our road um, I think it has also some potential to fuel some of the anti-cycling stuff that we hear about. Oh, well, if they've got more rights than me, and I pay this, um, etc. But I, I do feel that um, it has, you know, it has the potential to have a, a, a positive impact. I should say, however, that every time I do say this, there are people that say to me, "It won't make diff- any difference whatsoever. Drivers just do what they want, and they will continue to do what they want." And the legal systems, uh, as um, I points out that, you know, policing has reduced over uh, years um, and these things are only deterrents if they're actually policed. And we know even now when people are actually convicted of dangerous driving, sometimes it then becomes careless driving a, a, a plea and they might get 18 months in prison for killing somebody. Um, so so it has to have a wider effect. There has to be different things that change. But I happen to think it will make a difference.
2: Laura, do you have any intel on 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 policy and and the possibility of that coming to the UK? Um,
3: I I don't specifically on this. I feel like it's I feel like I would love to see it happen because I think it would uh, sharpen people's minds when they're out on the road. Um, and I think at the moment, there's not always a sense of people having feeling responsibility to other people. Um, I've, I had someone drive at me. I was uh, riding. Uh, with a friend, uh, I had this van driver just driving at me and kind of doing a motioning movement for me to get out the way. We were as wide as a car. So, um, yeah, he was kind of motioning me, but not slowing down. just like, I'm going to just no sense. That I'm a human being and that really bad things would happen if he didn't just like chill out a little bit. But, um, I don't know. So I think that, I think that could potentially change that. I think, um, the policing issue is a really big issue, even in London. Um, the, uh, Andy Cox's work, um, with speeding and focusing on really dangerous driving. I think there's an issue with the court system that it's not really dealing with people who drive dangerously, um, strong enough. We very rarely ever, um, take away people's license is for good. I think that sends a message that it's not that serious driving dangerously in a car. You know, these things happen kind of thing.
2: Okay, uh, thanks, thanks both. There was a question that had come in from Graham that um, appears to have been deleted by Adam. I think it's a bit of a shame no, to be honest. No, that's, no, no. That's no. It was bit off <sighs> piste That's all. Because um, I think probably, possibly, Graham, seeing that I was on the panel, wanted to ask a perfectly legitimate question about road racing rather than banging on about active travel. Um, I was quite happy to, I was quite happy to answer it. But since it's already, I know,
3: think we should throw it in. I it think was, it was
0: actually from Paul. Um, you, oh, sorry, from sorry, Paul from Paul. Paul, not There's Graham. No, it's fine, Graham. We will answer. And you, you answered it really you quickly. I've got seconds to
2: answer this. Um, uh, (laughs) France seems to be struggling with a format for an official women's race tour. Is there any chance that our well-established women's tour of Britain could be that race in the future? My answer is yes. Right. Question from Graham. Um, (laughs) I actually have a good reason for thinking that, but I can't go into it here on this podcast. Um, Question from Graham. Are cities looking at the idea of banning large lorries during the day? I understand that some cities in France do. This would make city roads safer and encourage more kids to cycle. Too right it would. Um, But you know, that's easy for us to say. We all rely, don't we, on stuff being in our shops And, um, you know, when we need them, the tins of beans are in Tesco's. So how do you get the lorries off the roads in the cities at the time of day when people are using it? Laura, you seem to be keen to answer this thorny question because it's a big, it's a big one this, isn't it?
3: It is, it is a big one I, w- I remember um, I interviewed Jan Gell Years ago The guy that wrote um, Cities for People He's like a big Kind of Father of the di- the Kind of movement Around um, people Friendly streets And um, I remember I w- It was an old street And this massive Lorry rumbled past And it had some Like cement on it Like building materials But it's right in The centre of London And he looked at it as, we- as it went past And he was like That would never happen In Copenhagen We just don't allow them Basically lorries go to the Outskirts of the city Drop stuff off at depots And then smaller of Vehicles will drive them in. I think the problem with simply moving the uh, lorries to the nighttime is that um, it just disturbs people's sleep, and um, noise when you're sleeping is like super stressful and bad for your health. So I think my p- preference would be for those kind of depots and then the last mile to be vans or even cargo bikes
0: yeah i i agree um we it is tempting to say well we did it during the olympics and you know we managed to do to do um freight and and stuff like that in um in cities and and there is an argument for that and i think it is possible but we need to consider that you know lots of shops next to residential areas and things like that um i i get frustrated with this sometimes because as you say in copenhagen this is exactly what happens um and they have these, what's known in the industry as last mile solutions, which is the hardest and most expensive bit. And I often see here in the UK, you know, people kind of turning their nose up and saying, oh, well, yeah, cycling stuff's great, isn't it? I don't want to be in this impression today. Um, but this this, uh, this cycling stuff I nearly is, pulled you up on
2: that earlier because yeah, I thought you were doing sorry. the cycling community a disservice, but um, you know, yes, I, 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 I'm not, not going to let it go again, Adam. Okay.
0: Thank you. Um, thanks for keeping me in check. Um, the, yeah, like I don't, <laughs> where, where I'm going now um but like uh oh yeah well the cycling is already well but what happens when it rains and I'd like to see you know my shopping get home on a on a on a bike uh and and you know elsewhere this just totally happens it, you know it might yeah. not be something you can see right now um but it but it it does happen you know we have cargo bike deliveries in lots of european cities there is no reason pedal me uh, have been doing deliveries for for TfL because TfL realized that Their building sites, some of their contractors were using big vans to carry effectively a plank of wood that they needed of that particular size. So it just doesn't make any sense. Um, And that's the way we should be going.
2: I have massive faith in the cargo bike revolution uh, based on no evidence. I just think it's I just think it's something that will become so self-evidently um, feasible and, and the right thing to do so quickly that I think it'll just occur. Uh, but it's a different question, as Laura rightly said, keeping the HGVs away in the first place, you know, and, and getting them to dump their, their freight off. So Laura, you had your hand in the air again. Did you want to come no, back in No, I was, just, with I was just doing yeah. a
3: little fist bump for, um, oh, for cargo bikes. Yes. Yeah. Go cargo bikes. Uh, yeah. What's it called? Pedal
2: Me, isn't it? The one in London. Pedal yeah. Me. Yeah. Yeah, sure. they're they're great, me. Great They've got trailers.
3: Guys. I know. I oh, know. just London. I applied for a job mm-hmm. there. <laughs> A few oh. week,
2: A few weeks ago, but they weren't hiring. Oh, hmm. Anyway, lockdown's been great for me. How's it been for you? Um, right. So uh, where are we now? Lo- question from Joanna. Can you talk about the interplay between local um, local government and government, I guess, or central government? Seems that central government has all the money, but doesn't do anything. And local, <laughs> this is a very good point. And local government that has no money. How does that money get to the local level? Now- I'm going to go to Laura on this. Laura, this sounds quite technical and possibly yeah. quite dry, but very important. I'm, I'm, sure, gonna, I'm sure you can make okay. it. I'm sure you can make I'm it, it concise it and also with thrilling. an interpretive dance. Yes. for our listeners, Brilliant. Brilliant. Do um,
3: do for our podcast listeners. Um, yeah, so true. Um, most of the money comes from um, central government. Um, they're very much about um, about giving power to local authorities. And, um, but yeah, there's no money for, there's often very little money for cycling basically, uh, unlike with roads, which get long-term funding, um, and rail, which gets long-term funding at the moment, cycling gets little bits and bobs from little different pots. And you have to be quite wily as a council to know where to go. So it's like a bit from here, a bit from there. And then you have it as part of a bid that has something else in it. Um, which is, to- which is nonsense. Um, There is talk of having a long term cycling fund so that we can put an end to this. Um, And yeah, the government is very much uh, into the idea of just giving local councils more power. And I think um, that devolution is like is really it would be really good for active travel. It's been good for Manchester and Sheffield and Leicester. And um, yeah, I think that's the way forward. Basically, hopefully that answers the question.
2: Uh, yes, it does. Although I've got a quick follow-up one, which this feels a bit like the Downing Street briefing, doesn't it? Um, over Zoom. I've got a follow-up question, um, Laura, which uh, I'm sure you can answer because you've written about it today, as you say, on Road CC. Um, if you look at the London boroughs, and apologies again for being London-centric, I, I can't remember what the- hu- I just looked at my borough, which so far has spent 20 grand, which in the grand scheme of things isn't much. That's Lewisham. Um, and I can't remember yeah, which- The, the top better. borough- well, I think we were second from bottom. The top borough mm. had spent- M- millions, am I right? Millions?
3: Um was allocated two point six million, I think. Um yeah, Lambeth got oh, the Lamb- most. Yeah. Um yeah, Lambeth's delivering so loads. Why, at the moment Why is that so mm-hmm.
2: why is that so di- why is that so different? Laura.
3: Well, um they've been doing tons of stuff already. They've done um pavement widening in Herne Hill. I think, was one of the first ones that they did. They just put some cones or barriers out onto the road um to make more room for pedestrians. Um they've done two low traffic neighbourhoods at least. Um I had a little cycle down there the other day, Oval and Vauxhall oh Hernhill and Vauxhall area. Um, so they're just going ahead and doing stuff. And I think the fact that they're able to do that and mobilize quickly has been part of the thing. So, um, there's a number of reasons there's like, if they've got schemes, if they can do it quickly, if they've shown, yeah. And yeah, and if they've, yeah, that's, that's kind of it really. Um, and so it's not at the end of the funding yet, we're about halfway through, so hopefully boroughs like yours will get more money, and it might just be that they're getting stuff later because they've got plans, but they're not quite ready to spend it. That's what I'm hoping because it does seem it, there's a massive discrepancy. One borough got you were the second bottom, but one got one borough got eleven grand uh, yeah. in the last three weeks. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: there's um nationally there's there's a you know a a picture that that uh, reflects I guess what we've seen in London where the councils who have put together good plans and been ambitious have therefore seemingly you know been um, uh, been been rewarded, um, or, or at least um, you know, uh, got stuff out there, which is which is more than we said for a lot. I think there's a, a deep-rooted worry in councils that don't have political will um, to. Not release their plans um, because they're worried that like NIMBYism will take over and um, the whole thing will fall on its face. Um, which I kind of, having seen it happen, like you know, I do do have some um, some sympathy with it. Um, but the interesting thing I think with the Department for Transport funding, which London councils will get some of that, and then also nationally, that's the funding that's going into to England, um, is that they are beginning just twenty percent of it to start with. Um, and um, 20% is being allocated straight away. And basically, uh, my view and many others' views is that it's they're just seeing if they mess it up, basically. Um, and the, the language is quite strong, actually, for the DFT. It doesn't normally like this, and it's sort of like... You have to change the status quo, and if you mess it up, you won't get any more money. And if you mess it up the first bit, we'll ask for the money back. Um, and that's uh, that's the kind of wording that you're not used to seeing in like a civil servants letter um, to, to councils, and and that's how firm they're they're being with it.
3: Firm but fair.
2: Yeah, I think I think I'd agree actually on the fairness bit of that strong wording because because there is a temptation just to spend money in a slightly useless and indirect way. Um I like
3: painting a airplane
2: yeah but yeah no well it I wasn't for me to mention, but now you've mentioned it again Laura um for example but no but even in terms of the stuff that we're interested in i question i question as I have done in the podcast before I question the thought throughedness of some of the schemes and it strikes me that they've just looked at them occasionally and gone we can do that let's do it without thinking whether or not that's the right way of spending the money right so um i'm yeah. I'm actually in support of that attitude I think um Question from Jackie to you, Adam. How much power do you have as a cycling mayor? What's it like being a cycling mayor? And Jackie says, I would like a job like that. I, I think she might have possibly misconstrued whether or not it's a job, Adam. Are you are you a highly paid civil service Mandarin?
0: No, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a lowly paid, often shouted at uh, volunteer. Um, and I have the kind of power somewhere between uh, I guess a library card owner and a lollipop man. Um, uh, <laughs> in that, um, no, I, I can't even. I just wanted to say that um, it definitely depends where uh, where you are. Um, bicycle mares, um, one hundred and fifty around the world, so they they take different forms. The one in uh, Amsterdam, the first one, is actually now. Uh, you know funded and ratified by the um by the city government there so they've kind of embraced it with um uh with with um all they have there's a bicycle mayor in dublin um who is also a councilor and the council and therefore put forward a motion that um you know the bicycle mayor position should be um kind of uh, accepted by council and engaged with formally and and you know uh, in consultations and things like that. The reason I became bicycle mayor in Coventry is because um, the opposite of all those things really nothing was happening and there was no political will for for Coventry. So I'm I'm a um, uh, an advocate and a campaigner, if you like. And the power that I do have, uh, I guess, um, is the fact that I have you know the support of I guess. Uh, cycling organisations to 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 do this, um, but also um, I, because of my background, um, I understand and work well with the media as well. So where there has been no interest in cycling before, and they could just not build any cycle lanes and no one would say anything, I feel like now we're in a position where um, we can, you know, actually say this is what you need to do and call them out for not for not doing it. So the bicycle mayor kind of it's a loaded title, so it kind of gives gives off an a you know an air of oh we should listen to this guy and hopefully I've been able to follow that up with actually saying sensible things. And um, but it can really um, it can really differ from where you are. And I would say if you want to do something like that, it's a really you know it's a really rewarding way to cycle campaign. Um, and I think you know they'd love to see more in uh, in, in the UK. So you can check that out. Um, the organization that do does it is called Bikes they're BYCS.org. Um, and you can say, I want a bicycle mayor in my town, or I want to be the bicycle mayor and they'll tell you how to go about that.
2: Very good, Jackie. That's your path to power. You too can be like Adam if you want to. Um, uh, we've got two more questions. If we can rattle that off in the next sort of five or 10 minutes before our allocated time is up. Um, Bruce asks, uh, and it's a, this is a, this is a biggie. So let's just pick out one aspect and maybe focus, focus in on it a bit. Do you think more should be done at schools to start getting biking seen as a mainstream thing to do by everyone, regardless of income? Bruce says, hardly any parents cycle their kids to school, not just about safety, it's also the parents. Um, they just answer, uh, mums, I don't know, there's a little bit of sort of possibly value judgment here that I won't get involved in, fella blah blah blah. blah. Um, it's to- I'll summarise, it's totally unaspirational to them. Um and that is true I think that that is the would you not agree that is the 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 backwash of history against which we're fighting so you know if you if you look back in the history of how motor cars replaced uh, bikes in the urban environment in the in the post-war years um, it was absolutely that word aspiration wasn't it that 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 changed people's um, modal thinking in the first place. Like bikes were rubbish, cars were where it's at. And that's going to take a lot of shifting.
3: Uh, but I would say in cycles' favor, cycling's favor, kids want to cycle, one. Um, also, school streets, two, brilliant. We had that in the last podcast, so check it out. Um, also, what was I going to say? Oh, cycle training. We had a question earlier about cycle training, which we, anyway, we didn't answer, but here it is. Uh, I would say adult cycle training. Um, I spoke to Bikeability Trust, who do the kids' cycle training, which is supposed to be rolled out to everyone, but hasn't yet, everyone who's kids. Um, and I would say also for adults, if we could make it free for adults, they reckon it would cost a million half pounds a year and um, huge returns because anyone who wants to cycle will like get the confidence to ride on the roads there are some pop-up lanes but there's lots of rubbish in between and junctions are quite hard to navigate in this country if you haven't experienced cycling Um, and that also means that when kids learn how to cycle their parents also feel safe cycling and so I would say I would say like a multi-pronged approach
0: yeah I I don't know I I think it's it's tougher than that. I'm, I'm a really big fan of cycle training and I think we should be doing more cycle training because while the infrastructure isn't there yet, we need to, there are people who do have a will and a desire to cycle. And, um, I saw this week, Susanna Reed wrote a piece in the mail and basically was saying that like, I'm petrified. I'm terrified. It needs to be better. And cycle training, arguably could have had a big impact, but therefore, but you also have to like, look at is cycle training, you know, going to deliver a a shift in behaviors because, um, you know, uh, cycle training is almost, I don't want to undermine it. I've not done it. So maybe I'm a bit wrong, but I can imagine people in high vis jackets, you know, going through and sort of waving their arms about and, 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 and stuff like that. And I know it's not like right. that's like the people's perception of it, but I just think you know getting adults to learn new stuff is often a barrier um, uh, in, in itself. So I I think you've got to you've got to have a bit of stick. You've got to have the school streets that m- enforce people to make a good decision. So ultimately, I could drive there; it takes twenty minutes, or I could cycle there, and it takes fifteen. That's got to be the kind of language, like like solution in their heads that they're going through. I don't think you can make it. Super, you know, uh, the deep-rooted status things in our in our culture are going to be there for um, for quite a while. Um, but we, what we can do is make cycling seem less, you know, less unusual. Um, and we are seeing that through school streets and just seeing kids riding bikes because it's what they want to do.
2: My view is that kids learn off their parents, um, and yeah. if parents don't cycle, there's no way. As a as a matter of course, there's no way their children will inherit that uh, that enthusiasm. In my experience, you know, you 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 can um, you can you have to accept with children that they go through phases and they they will you know from from time to time, year after year, just drop the bike. But if you've already given them the example, they might well come back to it. If you haven't already given them that example, they'll never come back to it so it'll be totally alien to them and and parents are adults and adults learn off their peers and for all those adults who have a place of work and we've we talked about this before as well in the podcast what matters in the place of work is your key peer who in that one office is the person who cycles and and their attitude so th- that's that kind of organics I, I I'm Adam, I I share your slight um, hesitancy about the effectiveness of bicycle training with adults, especially. Um, My my thing is it's a much more organic uh, route than that and slightly intangible, but without adults doing it with their kids. And by the way, (laughs) this has been one of the joys of the quieter roads. And we're just going to come on to our final question about quiet roads in a second. One of the joys of quieter roads, at least in London, has been the amount of kids I've seen who've been riding not on the pavement but on the road, on the road with their parents, which is so important. I made with our kids when they were very young, I made a very, very big point about not letting them sort of develop this comfort blanket of riding on the pavement where they shouldn't be, but actually plonk, <laughs> plonking them on the road in the first place and getting them used to that because that's what we've got to deal with. You know, no, no, you can't sugarcoat it. Our roads are our roads. Um and turns out it's fine turns out it's fine. So anyway, that's just my thoughts. Um, our last question, and it relates to quiet roads, comes from James, um, who asks whether traffic evaporation, which is a lovely phrase and it sums it up perfectly, what we've witnessed over the last few months, is real or is it a myth? And I guess that refers to basically, has it come back? Has it come back and has it come back with a vengeance to bite us on the bum? Um,
3: I would say real, real. Traffic evaporation is real. So it's where you... Um reduce the space for motor traffic and then fewer people drive and it's partly about what Adam was just saying um about making just making car journeys longer and then cycling or walking or um, other modes become easier and so yeah you just get less traffic basically so you you get what you build for um and yeah that's why we've got so many cars we've been building for building for them for how many years
2: wait, now? wait. Sorry, before you come in, Adam, I, I maybe I've understood misunderstood the term traffic evaporation. Is traffic evaporation a kind of sneaky, dark policy to make life for motorists harder? Is that what it is?
3: No, and I think it, I think there's some scepticism when um, new infrastructure is being built around whether it's real or not. I think I think people believe in it, but uh, many people believe in it. But I think when you're planning um, a new cycle route or or um, Closing a street to through traffic, there's always a little bit of will it won't it happen. But I think generally, when when you make uh, fewer routes for cars and fewer people drive, uh, I think congestion's a sort of self-limiting thing. If yeah, it gets to a certain amount of congestion, and some people just won't tolerate, it and they'll stop driving.
0: Um, where I live in uh, just outside Coventry in, in Warwickshire, um, our local town uh, had a plan to close the high street as part of the COVID mes- m- uh, measures, and the town collectively lost its mind because um, they they kept saying phrases like traffic displacement and I found it quite hard to dispute that um, and it's like a deep rooted fear of, of of what would happen but basically uh, where I live the road, you know, go there's a, there's a high street but it's also the main road through the town and people worried that the only other road would be through a residential area and it would take HGBs and it would take buses and, and things like that and like to be honest, I think the plan could have been a bit better, and it hasn't gone gone through unfortunately. Um, but what people forget in this kind of status quo is that the problem is the cars. You know, it's not that um, the plan. You know, oh, this plan's not work. That you know, you're not going to ever make a difference unless you make driving more difficult. So it's not just about rerouting traffic somewhere else. You've got to actually reduce um, re- reduce the traffic, and I think a lot of people are quite dubious about whether that could actually happen because it goes against logic. But if you look at the reverse of that, you know, induced demand, um, the 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 idea of um, tackling, you know, someone referred to it as tackling obesity by saying you're going on a diet by loosening your belt, um, and the the um, the, <laughs> the the, the it just doesn't work. It's all that one more lane thing. Like Los Angeles has been, just one more lane will fix it. Just one more lane will fix it. And and now they've got 14 lane highways. And guess what? They're still gridlocked because every time you make it easier to drive, more people drive. So people think that like the reverse is also true. Make it harder to drive and people won't drive. And if you look at, uh, I can't say, you know um for sure whether you know I haven't seen the data on it and I'm not that well read on it but if you look at like ghent for example who went had their traffic circulation plan in 2017 they um they basically zoned the town so people can drive to short spaces without kind of going back out to the ring road going around and then going in again and people like now my 200 meter journey is going to take 20 minutes and it's like yes we don't want you to make the 200 meter journey by by car and all that traffic disappeared overnight because they made it more more difficult um to to drive so that's the logic i think it exists but i'm not smart enough to know whether it actually exists i just hope it does
2: I think I think it probably does exist. I just think it's quite difficult to sell outside the confines of the initiated, <laughs> but I, I think I think it works. I think it's a really interesting um conundrum how how you actually get that effective policy out there, whether you use subterfuge or whether you just lay it out in the open but that's uh that's maybe a big discussion for another podcast, perhaps Adam, Laura. you're looking at me yes. blankly as if you've uh, lost how no, to live no. um no, I think so. so. Listen, thank you to everybody. I'm looking down as sixty people have stuck with us um live on this um on this podcast all the way to the bitter end, well past nine o'clock. As you can see, it's going dark. It's going dark in my bedroom now, and I can't leave my position to switch the light on. So before it all falls apart, <laughs> I'll uh, wrap things up. <laughs> Phil Wright from Hernhill Velodrome has just come back to to uh, be part of this conversation, I think, and um uh, and and, and please, uh, we're very grateful to have been hosted tonight by Herne Hill Velodrome, very close to my heart. Um, the purpose of, of doing it live on this platform was to give um, Herne Hill folk, the wider community, a chance to contribute to this debate, but much more importantly than that, um, uh, to donate, literally. I don't mean just nod and go, yeah, 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 I'll do that. I mean, actually donate, sort of now. Um, by clicking on the very obvious thing that says donate there or going to the website and following the very obvious cues and literally spending some money uh, to keep an important part of London alive. So do it. Don't just say you're going to do it or think you're going to do it just do it it's very simple and then you you can sleep well tonight um but to everybody who's hosts us in particular thank you very much keep listening to street to head podcast folks uh let us know rate us on itunes and do all that sort of thing that makes us feel good about ourselves and not lonely in this darkening world um to my co-hosts adam tranter and laura laker and for me uh, ned bolting it's goodbye for this live edition